That's a great prayer, and I hope you meant that as you said it with us. Grant me the serenity to accept the things that I cannot change. It reminds me of Paul's thorn in the flesh, and three times he prayed asking God, would you take this away from me? And what did God say? My strength works best in your weakness. And so we need to accept those things we cannot change. But the courage to change the things we can. There are good things that God wants you to do that he's prepared for you to do, and so often we don't take the steps necessary to do those things. We need to ask him for the courage to do those things, and he will give us that courage. He wants us to do the things he's prepared for us to do. There are some people here today that are going to take a courageous step on this stage in a little bit. They're going to come forth to be baptized, to profess their faith in Jesus and to, to show all of us, to demonstrate to all of us that they believe that he died, he rose again, and they're going to follow him with their lives. It's a nerve-wracking thing to do, to get up here in front of all of you. Believe me, I should know. I do it pretty regularly. And they're going to come out and they're going to do that because they want to demonstrate to you that they trust in Jesus. But before we do that, um, I want to talk a little bit about baptism. This is not a normal message. This isn't a sermon. It's not really even a devotional. This is a brief teaching time. This is a time to talk about some of the things that would have been great to include in last week's message, but really wouldn't have fit for time and just because of the nuances that they go into. These are questions that a lot of people have been asking about baptism. And what I want to share with you today is the reason behind the way we do baptism here. Not to say that there isn't disagreement about some of this, not to say that we can't have different views even here among us, that's okay, but to explain the why behind the way we do it here, and this isn't meant to end a conversation or a dialogue, this is meant to openly address some of the differences that we may have, but to explain the reasons for why we do things the way we do, and maybe to give you some thoughts from a different perspective as well as we explain some of this. Before I do that, I want to remind you of something we talked about a year ago in the Undivided series. This is the Buckets of Belief. Now, how many of you remember the Buckets of Belief from last year? Anyone show me if you remember? Okay, very good, very good. So who can tell me what is the innermost bucket, that first bucket in the Buckets of Belief? Dogma, very good. Oh, I'm so excited you remember that. What's the next bucket? Doctrine. And the third bucket is? Conviction, and the fourth bucket is preference. If you were not here a year ago or you did not uh, get to be a part of that series, I would really encourage you to go on our website at efree.org. In fact, if you want to jump right there, you can go to efree.org slash undivided and watch those messages because it's really foundational for understanding what we believe as a church uh, and even what we choose not to divide over. It's really important to know that distinction because there are some things that we have different views on, and that's okay. We celebrate that, but at the same time, we want to have reasons for what we believe, and we want to understand what goes in what bucket. So here's an example of what the buckets look like just for a summary. Dogmas are beliefs that we see as essential to be a true follower of Jesus. Basically, it's the gospel. And so this is the fact that Jesus and God created this world, that humans rebelled against him, that Jesus came and lived a perfect life, died in our place on the cross, rose again, and offers salvation to us so that we can be saved, not by anything that we could do, but because of what he did for us when we trust in him and believe in him. That's the gospel message. There's a little more to it than that but that's what we would say is our dogma, the, the most important thing that we believe that makes us a follower of Jesus. The next bucket is doctrines. And these are things, beliefs, 
that a church or a group of people has identified as being important for unity and fellowship within that group. Now, here's the important distinction. There are some doctrines that we believe that the church down the road may not believe the same things that we do, and yet, that doesn't mean that we say, well, they're not true followers of Jesus, because we both believe in the dogma, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We both believe in salvation through Jesus Christ and nothing else that we can do through him alone, but we may have some different views about other issues. That doesn't mean that we're both right. This isn't relativistic. One of us is right and one of us is wrong. We're pretty sure we're right on our doctrine. Otherwise, we wouldn't believe it. At the same time, we have to recognize the fact that while other people may disagree with us, we agree on what makes us followers of Jesus. And so we don't exclude them from the body of Christ. We just say, hey, for the purpose of unity and fellowship here, this is what our doctrine is, our statement of faith that you can read on our website. Those are doctrines. Convictions are beliefs that are based on biblical principles. There's something that we may feel very strongly about, but they are more personal beliefs as opposed to things that we would force on other people. And so we have convictions about all ty- types of things. Some people have convictions about alcohol. Some people have convictions about um, music. Some people have convictions about different things that they do or how they dress or things like that, that they would base on a biblical principle, but it's not spelled out in the Bible to the point where you can go to someone else and say, see, you have to follow what I believe believe about this or my interpretation of this. There's, there are personal convictions that we hold that are going to be different from each other. And Romans 14 says, you should follow those. If you have a conviction, you should follow that conviction, but you cannot force that conviction on someone else. That's bucket number three. The fourth bucket is preferences. Preferences are beliefs. A preference is a belief that one thing is better than another thing. That's a preference, that is a belief, and that's the fourth bucket. I'll give you an example. This week we had some exciting things going on. There was the NFL draft. Did anybody watch the NFL draft? Anyone? Okay, not many. There was like one, there's one person here that watched the NFL draft. Good for you. Um, some exciting things happened there, okay? If you don't follow that, you probably don't care. Um, the Cardinals are doing pretty well right now. Anybody follow the Cardinals here? They, they, had, they swept the Brewers, which was awesome. Uh, I think they went one-on-one with the Reds, which is, you know, okay, but... They're doing pretty well right now, which is exciting. They've got, a, they've got a good record. I think they've won the most games this month since 2011 or something like that. Anyway, they're doing really well. Uh, there's also something else happening with sports this week around here. I can't remember what it is, though. Um, oh, the Blues are in the second round of the playoffs, which is exciting. Um, didn't really know they were going to make it that far, but now some people have them favored to win the cup. Anyway, I'm getting off track. The point is... We all have different preferences about those things. How many of you prefer football? Raise your hand if you prefer football over the other sports, okay? How many of you prefer baseball? Anybody, you prefer baseball? Okay, that's a good amount, I'm not surprised. How many of you prefer hockey? Anyone? Okay, good. How many of you prefer a different sport? Anybody? Okay, something else, could be golf or, I don't know, Quidditch or whatever. Um, Some of you, some of you might prefer no sports at all. Anyone, no sports category? Okay, I know there's a few of you brave souls out there, good for you, thanks for identifying yourselves. Don't invite those people to your Super Bowl party. Here's the point. We all have different preferences, and some of us have preferences about music style and colors of things and decor and all kinds of preferences that we have. Those are things we need to hold to very loosely. Most of the division that happens in churches, I'm telling you, 
is because people take a preference or a conviction and they raise it to a level that is too high. They raise it to a doctrine or a dogma. And they say, my preference or my conviction is so important that if you don't agree with me on this, then maybe you shouldn't even be a part of my church. Or maybe you're not even a believer if you don't agree on this. And we just have an approach here where we want to treat those things as secondary issues, talk about them, not sweep them under the rug, not be silent about them, but be very gracious in how we talk about them. That's important context for what I'm about to share with you, because I'm going to talk with you about the common questions that we get about baptism. I get these types of questions all the time. I think it's good for us to talk about these, but to understand that we're going to have some differences of opinion. So please know that um, I do not mean to offend any of you with what I share here today, so please forgive me if that happens accidentally. I'm just trying to explain the rationale for our practice here, not to say that you necessarily have to agree with us to be a part of our church family here. We disagree about a lot of different things, and that's okay, and I'll try to make some distinctions there as we go. Some of these are pretty important, though. The first question is, do I have to be baptized to be saved? Now, this is actually a dogma question. Because we're saying, as many churches do, we'll say that salvation is not just about believing in Jesus, it's also about being baptized. And you need both of those things in order to be a true follower of Jesus. That regeneration actually happens for your soul when you are baptized. So it takes faith plus baptism, and then you become a true believer indwelled by the Holy Spirit. That's called baptismal regeneration. Let's look at what the Bible says. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, Paul writes, God saved you by his grace when you believed. He saved you when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's not a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. So here's the thing. God wants us to do good things. But no good thing, no act, no activity that you can do will somehow add or get you over the threshold to where you're suddenly acceptable to God. There is no act or work that we can do in addition to trusting in Jesus that is going to somehow make us saved. He saved you when you believed. 1 Corinthians 1, 17 says, For Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the good news, and not with clever speech for fear that the cross of Christ would lose its power. What had the power? The cross. The message of the cross, not the baptism. In fact, Paul says here, Christ didn't send me to baptize. Not that baptism is not important, but that's not what I'm here to do. I'm here to preach the good news. So he makes a distinction here between water baptism and the message of the good news of the gospel. He says those are different things. And, and his part in that is to come and preach the gospel and then other people baptized later. But that didn't mean that they were not true believers, followers of Jesus when they believed the message of the gospel. And if 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 baptism were a part of a requirement for salvation, we would expect for Paul to include baptism in that good news. But he's saying, no, I didn't come here to baptize. That wasn't my purpose. I came here to preach the good news. That's what leads to salvation. So there's a distinction there between baptism and the good news of the gospel that saves us. There's one more reason that we don't believe that baptism is necessary for salvation. It's found in Luke chapter 23. Jesus is on the cross between two criminals. One criminal mocks him. One criminal believes in him. And here's what he says. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And look at what Jesus says in response. Jesus replied, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. 
And so here, Jesus is talking to someone who has just believed in him. He's giving him assurance that your belief really did save you, not the belief that saved you, but God saving you because of your belief. And so you will be with me in paradise. You will be in heaven as a result of this. However, this is a man who is going to die on a cross. There was zero opportunity for him to be baptized before that happened. Therefore, baptism cannot be necessary for salvation. That was a dogma question. This next one is more of a doctrine or a conviction question depending on the church. You'll see what I mean in a minute. Here's the question. Should we baptize infants? Should we baptize infants? And and I heard from a lot of people after the first service who came up after this and said, thank you, this has been such a topic of discussion for us, we haven't really known how to think about it. So let me just share with you uh, some perspective on this. Many of us grew up in churches where infant baptism was practiced. Many of us were baptized as infants. My wife grew up in a Catholic church and she was baptized as an infant. But we don't practice infant baptism here. Why is that? Well, to understand this, you have to go back to where the practice started from. So let me just give you a very brief history lesson on this. Under the old covenant, Israelites were required to circumcise newborn males on the eighth day. This circumcision did not save them in any way. It just indicated that they were a part of the covenant people with God. And so that would happen on the eighth day. what happened to this practice after Jesus came along? Well, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He says, For instance, a man who was circumcised before he became a believer should not try to reverse it. And the man who was uncircumcised when he became a believer should not be circumcised now. That's good news for any of you guys that are thinking about becoming a believer. <laughs> for it makes no difference whether or not a man has been circumcised. The important thing is to keep God's commandments. So Paul is saying here that circumcision, that part of the old covenant, it no longer applies. That is not a part of the new covenant. What has replaced it? For that, we go to Colossians chapter 2. He says this, when you came to Christ, you were circumcised, but not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature. For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized, and with him you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. Now, this is where there is some disagreement among churches, and maybe even some disagreement among us here. There are some people who interpret this to mean that baptism replaced circumcision as the sign of the new covenant. And so just as infants were circumcised in the old covenant, so infants should also be baptized as a part of the new covenant. Others believe that what replaced circumcision was the spiritual baptism that happens when you believe, and that circumcision is no longer necessary, and that that believers alone should be baptized. Now, I want to tread very carefully here, because we have different views on this, and some people feel very strongly about those views. So again, forgive me if I offend you in some way. What I want to do here is just explain the reasons behind why we don't do infant baptism. At the same time, I do not want to avoid certain topics just because we have disagreement. In fact, I believe this is one of the key reasons why young people leave the church is because there are certain things that it looks like we just sweep under the rug and don't want to deal with because they're too controversial or we don't all agree on them. 
we need to be willing to talk about some of these things, even if they're a little awkward or we don't all agree. So what I'm going to share with you today is my perspective and many of our perspective on why we don't practice this. It is not to say that you are somehow wrong for uh, holding a different view, okay? So let me just share the rationale behind this. Most of the earliest writings on infant baptism come from two to 300 years after Jesus. That's the earliest time we see explicit writing on infant baptism. The understanding of infant baptism in these writings, and I've, I've read them, I've read every one I can find, is very clearly that it washed away the sins of the child, that it was literally saving, not from their own sin, but from inherited sin or original sin. That was the view of virtually every Christian leader who wrote on this back in the third and fourth century. In fact, in their own words, they said that baptism literally gave the infant righteousness, adoption, inheritance, brotherhood with Christ, and becoming a member of Christ. And it was even thought that it was probably an easier baptism because there were fewer sins to wash away. So if you wait till they're older, they've committed some of their own sins. Now it's just inherited sin, so it's, it's an easier baptism for them. One of the debates at the time was whether or not to baptize infants on the eighth day because if we're following the pattern of the old covenant here and if this is a carryover, it, the law required that it was the eighth day that infants were to be circumcised. And they, they eventually concluded that they should not wait that long because the understanding was infant baptism literally had a saving effect for the child and infant mortality rates being what they were, if they waited and the child died before the eighth day, that child might go to hell instead of heaven. So let's go ahead and baptize them as quickly as we can to make sure that that original sin is washed away so that if they die before the eighth day, they will go to heaven. Now, earlier I said most of the earliest writings because there is one more that does not share this perspective, and that is from Tertullian. This is actually the oldest writing on infant baptism explicitly. And Tertullian wrote against the practice, uh, which might mean that it was just starting to pop up at that time. He said, hey, since baptism is not necessary for salvation, why would we baptize infants and potentially give them this false assurance as if they are saved when it really doesn't have any effect for salvation? Within the next couple hundred years, it became common understanding among church leaders that baptism did have a saving effect, and so it should be applied to infants at a very early age. Now, we should note that there are other variations of infant baptism today and other views of what it means. For some people today, infant baptism is the joining of a covenant community. Not that it saves the child, but that it, in, it indicates a joining of the, the family of those who are following after God. And for other people, infant baptism is simply part of a dedication process, dedicating a child to God. Our association allows churches flexibility in what they practice here. A few of the churches in the EFCA, which we are a part of, do practice an infant baptism. However, you are not allowed in the EFCA to practice an infant baptism that says that it has a saving effect for the child. That would be baptismal regeneration. We already explained why we do not believe that is biblical, and that would take away from salvation by faith alone in Jesus Christ and add a work to it. But there are a few churches in our association that will practice infant baptism for covenantal or dedication reasons. Uh, what does the Bible say about this? Well, there are no passages of Scripture that specifically uh, command or prohibit this practice. There's no passage of Scripture that specifically speaks to it at all. There are some passages that some people will interpret to imply that infant baptism may have been involved. For instance, passages where a whole household is baptized. 
But the counterpoint to that is that infants and children are not mentioned in the text there, and not every household has infants in it. And so it's, it's more speculation that maybe there were infants there who maybe were also baptized as a part of that household. We don't know. Now, with something as potentially important as infant baptism is, and certainly as important as it is to some people, I would personally expect there to be more writing about it in the New Testament um, if this is something that was important. I would expect the New Testament authors to be reminding believers and saying, hey, by the way, remember to baptize your infants. We just don't see that in there, but nor is the practice prohibited in any way. So this is something that we just don't divide over, but we don't practice it here. Here's what we believe about baptism and where our practice comes from. Acts 2.41 says those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church. Acts 8.12 says, but now the people believed Philip's message of good news, and as a result, many men and women were baptized. Verse 13 says Simon himself believed and was baptized. Acts 18.8, Crispus, which by the way is just an awesome name. Um, I know there are some ladies here who are pregnant. If you would just consider... Crispus. This guy does not get enough recognition. And he's a great guy. Look what's going to happen here. His whole household gets saved, okay? Just name your kid Crispus, okay? It's an awesome name. The leader of the synagogue, everyone in his household believed in the Lord. Many others in Corinth also heard Paul, became believers, and were baptized. And lastly, in Acts chapter 10, Peter asked, can anyone object to their being baptized now that they have received the Holy Spirit? just as we did. So he gave orders for them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So I believe that our practice here reflects uh, what we see in the New Testament with regard to baptism being for believers. At the same time, we do not condemn or divide with those who believe in infant baptism for a covenantal or dedication purpose, as long as it is not meant to have any kind of saving effect on the child. Those are things that we can agree to disagree about. And I actually think it's really great that we're able to do that. If you think about what heaven is going to be like, there will actually be people there from other churches. There will be people in heaven who don't believe all the same things we believe. And we're all going to get there, and we're going to look around and go, really? Really? I ne- wow. And you go to, oh my, okay. Oh, you believe in Jesus. All right, that's great. And then you're going to look around and go, where's so-and-so? I, huh, I haven't seen them at all. And you ask Peter, and he's like, yeah, no, not really. Wow. There's going to be some surprises for us, okay? And probably every single one of us, not probably, every single one of us, is going to get there and have our eyes open, and we're going to see some things in a new light, and we're going to go, ooh, I was wrong about that. Oh, man, I was wrong about that too, and I was wrong about that, and oh, boy, I didn't see the bigger picture of this. Now, I don't know what those things are, and I believe very firmly in what I believe, but I also believe that I am not capable to know everything that God knows or understand all truth. That is in God's hands. There are certain things that I believe are very clearly spelled out in Scripture uh, to trust in Jesus. There are certain things that I believe are clear enough in Scripture for me to say, I think that's right, and I'm pretty sure everybody else is wrong. And there are other things that I would say, I'm pretty sure this is right, and I'm going to live my life according to that, but if somebody else disagrees with me, okay, that's up to interpretation. The important thing is that we all be gracious with each other over some of these different views and different beliefs. Because if we believe in Jesus and follow after him, trust in him, we are all brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. 
And he wants us to be loving and united and gracious with each other even when we disagree. So now you know some of the reasons behind the practice that we have. And I would encourage you, if this is something that interests you, to talk about this in your groups, talk about this with other people, and just see where people are at and learn and study more about it together. Let me pray for us now as we prepare for baptism. God, we thank you for your word and thank you for what it means to us. And I thank you that you did not give us a uh, 10,000 book version of the Bible that spells out every little detail for us to follow that we would all have to learn and memorize every tiny sentence and word that would make a difference in how we live our lives. You've really given us basic principles and, and, and enabled us with the Holy Spirit to guide us through this life, given us a tremendous amount of freedom to learn and explore and study and just not have it all spelled out for us. Like sometimes I wish it was, but you know best, and it's a good thing that we, uh, we can wrestle through these things and study them. It gives us a reason to study and to rely on you because it's not all spelled out for us. Help us, Lord, in all of this to be united with each other in love and in grace and in unity, even though we may have some different beliefs, um, at the same time to not sweep anything under the rug, but be willing to talk about it and dialogue with each other to better understand each other's position and hopefully to better understand how you would want us to practice and live and follow after you. And in Jesus' name we pray.